0: Let's open in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, the text that Henry read for us earlier in our service. Thank you, Henry. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. As you turn there, we do well to remind ourselves of the big picture here in Matthew, that Jesus is the King who reigns with all authority over the kingdom of heaven, consisting of disciples from all nations who obey all that he has commanded, all authority, all nations, all that he has commanded. Several of those themes we'll find picked up here in chapter 2 as we make our way through the text, but having turned there, uh, I'd like to just read verse 11, which will be uh, something of a a main verse or key text for us this morning. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we wish to see Jesus. We pray that great request from the men who approached the disciples of Christ, sirs, we wish to see Jesus. and We pray that as we see Him for who He is in Your Word, that You would give us hearts that respond rightly to who He is, that we would worship Him. We pray that You would impact our hearts with the truth of the Gospel this morning, again afresh and anew, as we celebrate the coming of Your Son, to be our King and our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) Well, it's a bit of a a cultural phenomenon now, isn't it? The giving of birth announcements whenever a young family has a new baby boy or girl. It's not abnormal to receive in the mail in any given month a notice from Mr. and Mrs. Smith announcing the birth of little Isabel, 8 pounds, 5 ounces, and uh, celebrating uh, as a family. Some of those notices are, are, are over the top in their expression, lots of pictures, great graphic uh, illustration, wonderful, wonderful announcement of the birth of a young boy or girl. And when you contrast that, I think, to the understated sort of elegance that takes place when someone is born into the royal family across the pond, you'll be struck by just how over the top some of our birth announcements really are. As a matter of fact, the most recent birth to the royal family, which took place just this year, uh, was met with a simple um, easel with a plaque on it outside of Buckingham Palace that read, Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cambridge, was safely delivered of a son at 1101 today. Her Royal Highness and her child are both doing well. Sort of an understated elegance to that announcement of the birth of someone who is part of the royal family. And here in Matthew's Gospel, what we have really is the first announcement, the first going public of the birth of the true royal, that is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And what we find is not even an understated elegance, we find that the kingdom of which he rules over is largely ignorant to his birth. That in fact it's Gentiles who come and give the announcement to the kingdom that the king has come, a strange way to announce the birth of of royalty. And as we zoom out from Matthew's Gospel just a bit, we discover that all throughout chapters 1 and 2, his purpose, his aim, is to show us how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. The birth of Jesus here framed out, presented squarely within the context of the fulfillment of Scripture five times In in chapters 1 and 2, we find that Jesus comes either as a direct fulfillment of Old Testament predictive prophecy or as the fulfillment in other ways of what is written in the Old Testament. Five times Jesus here presented as the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Matthew's keen to include and to deselect things that advance his purpose. So here we have no choir of angels. We have no visit to the manger scene, so far as we can tell. We simply have Gentiles coming to announce the birth of the King. And there's a purpose in that, of course, as there is everywhere else in the Scriptures, and that is that Matthew wants you and I this morning to see Jesus as the child-born King of the Jews, and in seeing Him, He wants us to worship Him. That's the key element here of our Advent season worship. Not simply enough to know that Jesus has come, it's to know who He is, and in knowing who He is, to worship Him. Now, as I've said, verse 11 is really the key, key verse of our text. We'll get there in due time. but I want to just work through this story and see how it advances this idea that Jesus is the child-born King of the Jews and worthy of our worship. The story begins really with fast-paced action in verses 1 and 2, uh, and then following in verse 3, we're introduced to all of the major players in our story. Verse 1, we read that when Jesus was born uh, in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. We have Jesus, we have Herod, and we have these wise men who have come from the east. Now I think it's, it's safe to say, if we're being honest with ourselves, that we have a knack for sentimentalizing these wise men. We talk about these we three kings, and the gifts that they bring to the young child Jesus, we've created really a sentimental view of who these wise men or magi really are. We think of them as pious, uh, God-fearing, Jesus-worshipping men, but history tells us quite differently about what kind of people these wise men would have been. The commentaries tell us, for instance, David E. Garland, that the term magi could have positive or negative shades of meaning in the ancient world, It could refer to wise men who possessed mystical knowledge, to practitioners of the black arts, as in Acts chapter 9, to astrologers, or to beguiling frauds, as in Acts chapter 13. These men are either mystics or astrologers or just straight-up frauds on the whole. These men aren't presented in that way, but the group from which they come certainly would have been understood in that way. That makes their arrival in in Jerusalem, all the more striking. It's Gentiles and pagan Gentiles at that that come to announce the birth of this king. Not only do we have the wise men, but we have King Herod. King Herod is a fascinating figure. Oxford English Dictionary, every year they come out with a word that is the word of the year, the word that describes where we're at as a culture and as a society. And don't you know that this year, 2018, The word that Oxford has set forth as a word that describes who we are as a culture and a society is the word toxic. That's no surprise if you read the news, you've seen that word over and over again. Toxic. Seems like everything's toxic. Toxic leadership, toxic masculinity. No surprise that this would be the word of the year. The only surprise is that Oxford seems to think that 2018 has had a monopoly on toxicity. Because down throughout the ages, all throughout history, there's been toxic leadership. And if there is one word that could aptly describe the reign of King Herod, it would be the word toxic. See, Herod here at this stage in the game is the rightful, legal king over the Jews in Judea. This is a man that was so incredibly paranoid, history tells us, that he once had his wife and his two sons assassinated for fear of their threat to his reign. We have these wise men, Gentiles, who come from the East. They're pagan in nature. We have Herod, who's a paranoid and oppressive ruler over the people of God. And we have Jesus, the one of whom the wise men ask, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? I want you to pause for a moment and take in exactly what has just been asked it's easy to miss the nuance of the question that the wise men ask. Notice with me that they do not ask, where is the one who has been born heir to the throne? They do not ask, where is the one who has been born crown prince in Israel? Their question, quite candidly, is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Born the king. Have you ever heard of that in all of human history? A child from whom his first breath, he owns the throne. From his first breath, he is the king. There's no waiting for ascension to the throne. There's no waiting for Herod to abdicate the throne. There's no singing, I just can't wait to be king. He is king. Born a child and yet a king. These wise men come wanting to know where he's at. They have come to worship him. They've seen a star, verse two, when it rose, and they've come to worship him. I, I wonder. I marvel at these wise men and whatever it was that they were able to ascertain from the stars. My family and I went to the planetarium at Westminster College just the other week, and you know I, I'm so stunned by the way that people are able to see up in the stars different signs and symbols. I sat in the planetarium and said, "You got a bear out of that." There's two bears. There's a major and a minor. I haven't seen any, but somehow these wise men, whatever it is, they see something. Maybe a star. Maybe a comet. Much like we'll see tonight if we're watching the night sky. The Christmas comet, so to uh, as it's called, is going to be in the sky tonight. Whatever it is they see, they end up in Jerusalem asking the king these questions. And Herod, for his part, is troubled. This is some real, is this your king kind of drama. Herod's fear is that Jesus has come to take the throne by force, that there's going to be some sort of upheaval, some sort of coup. And so he does the only thing that he knows to do, and and, and it's right for him to do this. He calls the Bible teachers. He calls the Bible teachers. You see that there in verse 4, assembling all the chief priests and scribes, the Pharisees and Sadducees of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. You can almost imagine him trying to, to discredit these hacks from the east who come questioning where this king of the Jews is. The answer, of course, lies within the pages of the Old Testament, doesn't it? Where is this king of the Jews? That's the emphasis, that's the thrust of the entire first half of our passage. Where is he? If he has come, where is he at? So the Bible teachers do the right thing and in verse 6 they quote Scripture. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is a quote from Micah chapter 5. Wonderful text. All throughout Micah's book, the prophet is speaking to Israel and Judah, the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel, and he's proclaiming to them a message of judgment. God is going to penalize you, discipline you for your sin, and that punishment is exile. But one of the striking motifs that runs all throughout Micah's prophecy is that the strongest condemnation, the strongest proclamation of judgment does not come to the average person in the kingdom of Israel. It's not to the laity, to put it acronistically. The strongest condemnation comes for the prophets and for the rulers. Corruption in the highest places of the kingdom of God. And in chapter 5, as the prophet sees, he looks out and sees the troops Gathered against Israel. He says, Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But then looking forward even further into time. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. As if to say... Even though judgment is about to fall, there will be good news in Israel again. There will come forth from you a ruler. Verse 4, He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You mean wise men from the east will come seeking to worship him? Well, Precisely. Where is the Christ to be born? The Bible teachers turn to Micah and they say, well, Bethlehem, of course. Where is He? If this King of the Jews has come, where is He? Well, if He's truly come, He must be in Bethlehem. Verse 7, then Herod summons the wise men secretly, and discovers from them exactly when they see the star. And in verse 8, he sends them to Bethlehem. Go and search diligently for the child. Where is he again? And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. All plot, all devious schemes. We know that from the rest of chapter 2, Herod's aim is to, quote, destroy Jesus Nevertheless, he sends these wise men, and after listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Is this king of the Jews, whose star they've seen, going to be exactly where he's supposed to be? The place where Christ the king is born. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshipped him. Where is he? Exactly where he's supposed to be. In Bethlehem of Judea. Born a child and yet a king. Well, let's look at verse 11 and, and let this sink in. Here is the great aim, the great end of Advent. They saw him. They fell down on their knees and they worshiped him. They saw him. They fell. They worshiped. It makes very little difference, really, who these wise men are. It makes very little difference, really, where they've come from. It makes very little difference really what kind of mysticism they had previously been involved in. Here is their legacy. That in seeing Him, they fell and they worshipped. J.C. Ryle, that great Anglican minister, once referred to as the Frank and Manly Mr. Ryle. I'm, I'm aiming for that in my life. For once to be able to be called the Frank and Manly Mr. Wilmer. I've got Frank down I'm working on the manly. But J.C. Ryle once said of these wise men the wise men believed in Christ when they had never seen him, but that was not all. They believed in him when the scribes and Pharisees were unbelieving, but that again was not all. They believed in him when they saw him a little infant on Mary's knees and they worshiped him as a king. This was the crowning point of their faith. Isn't that masterful? They worshipped him as a king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. They beheld no signs of divinity and greatness to overawe them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any one of ourselves. And yet, when they saw that infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world they fell down and worshipped Him. Matthew is saying simply, this child Jesus is that ruler shepherd who has come not to reign with an iron fist, but with a shepherd's heart. This is the one who has come to gather the people of God to Himself, to lead them, to protect them, to guide them, to be their Savior, and so they worship. Now friends, there is... Hours of application in that one verse. They saw Him and they fell down and they worshipped. Worship in its first and most fundamental place has everything to do with who God is and nothing else. I submit to you this morning that if Jesus is the Jesus that the Bible presents Him as, then ladies and gentlemen, on your knees. All external considerations fly out the window. It matters very little. Very little. Whether or not the worship on tap, quote, resonates with us. It matters very little whether or not we, quote, feel like worshiping. If Jesus is the child-born King of the Jews, then He is worthy of our worship. Plain and simple. Worship has everything to do with who Jesus is. They saw Him. They saw Him as the one who has been born King of the Jews, and on their knees they fell. And they worshiped. They bowed. Worship in its first place has everything to do with who Jesus is. But secondly, worship has everything to do with what Jesus has done. Here is this child-born King of the Jews. Do you realize that throughout Matthew's Gospel, there's only one other place where he's referred to as the King of the Jews? Clustered right into the context of the cross in chapter 27. Who is this king of the Jews and what has he come to do? Chapter 27, verse 11, being questioned by another leader of the Roman government. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. This is Pontius Pilate. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. Chapter 27, verse 29, the Roman soldiers begin to mock Jesus as the king. And we read, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then finally, and most famously, at the end of Jesus' life, as he hangs on the Roman cross, chapter 27, verse 37, and over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Worship, first and foremost, has everything to do with whether or not Jesus is worthy of our worship. And the New Testament is absolutely clear that Jesus alone is worthy of that kind of worship. For He is the King of the Jews. I think for many of us, we come at the Advent season with this feeling of joy and happiness at the birth of Christ. But I wonder if you've ever considered why Jesus was born. You do realize that the birth of Jesus divorced from the cross is nothing but empty sentimentality. It was John Stott who said that throughout Jesus' life, it was the giving of His life, not the living of His life, which loomed so largely in his mind. Why did Jesus come? Why this King of the Jews? This King of the Jews came to die for his subjects. Here is the rightful King who does not take the throne by force, but demonstrates that the throne belongs to Him by laying down His life for His people. And what a group of people it is. Not many of us here this morning could be designated as Jews, and yet we proclaim Him as our King. Here are the wise men from the East coming to worship before the throne of this King while the subjects of Israel refuse to give Him any mind. It doesn't matter who you are this morning, where you've come from, where you've been, you may bow before this King. You may find forgiveness and a place in His eternal kingdom simply by confessing that He is the King of the Jews and by bowing before Him, asking Him to save you, to be your Lord and to be your Savior. But be careful. Because when we meet Jesus, when we see Jesus for who He is, something profound happens. This past week, one of the headlines was LeBron James... First encounter with Michael Jordan. LeBron is on uh, record or on schedule to surpass Michael Jordan in total points scored throughout his career. And so they asked him about his first time meeting Michael Jordan. His answer was telling, if not blasphemous. He said, the first time I met Jordan was as if I had met God. Such an indelible impact made on a young LeBron James to meet the man that he had looked up to and aspired to be like and had pursued his entire young career. It changed his entire life. And when you see Jesus, when you really see Him, when you see Him as He is, the King of the Jews, it's not as if you've met God. You have met God. And life can never be the same. He changes you. No one has ever seen Jesus as He is, as the King of the Jews, and left disinterested. Oh no. They fall down. They worship. Have you seen Him? Have you really seen Him? And if you want any evidence that having seen Jesus completely transforms the way a man or a woman lives, you need to look no further than verse 12. Here are the wise men under the authority of King Herod, this false and spurious king, this maniacal, paranoid king. But having seen Jesus now and being warned in a dream, verse 12, they now live in service to the true king, the young child, Jesus. Have you seen him? You know, the, one of the simplest ways to really know whether I've seen Jesus and, this, and that I've seen him as he truly is is to look at my worship. That's all the indication I need. I need to look at the way that I worship. Do I worship Jesus because Jesus is Jesus? Do I worship Him because He's the King of the Jews? Do I worship Him because He laid down His life for my sins? Do I need external pressures, factors, then to worship? If so, something is wrong. Jesus, by His very nature, by His very glory, calls forth the worship of His people. There is no sweeter subject than the person and work of Christ. If you've seen Him, you've been changed. You fall before Him and you worship. And it is the Christian's great privilege to day after day, hour after hour, behold Christ as King of the Jews with the eyes of faith and to bow. This is not simply the point of entry. This is the very air that we breathe. See Jesus as the King of the Jews and in seeing Him, worship Him. This is the life-altering, paradigm-shifting, cataclysmic message of Christmas. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come before you humbled by your word. That you, Lord Jesus Christ, would come with a very meager announcement. Group of Gentiles, Magi from the East, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Then, when they finally found you in that home in Bethlehem, the very place where David was born, they saw the true king. And in seeing the true king, they fell to their knees and they worshipped. Oh Lord, there are so many things that we can so easily get distracted by as we think of this wonderful Christmas story. We wonder about the star, we wonder about the gifts, we wonder about so many of the details of this passage. But we pray that you would impress upon our hearts, at the forefront of our hearts, this threefold witness see him, fall before him, worship. Or well, we know it's only when we have done all three that we have understood what Christmas is all about. So, Lord, we pray, Hail, King of the Jews not in mockery, but in adoration for the One who would come and lay down His life for us. You are worthy of our praise, so let us praise You from our hearts because You deserve it. We pray that You would take our worship, that You would actually enhance it and make it better than it ever could be by Your grace, because You are worthy of more than we could ever even give You. Be with us through the remainder of this service, we pray.